This episode of No Quarter is sponsored by The Underground Retrocade. You love these games, and the way you want to play them is on the original cabinets. You want to see the side art, you want to feel the controls, and you want to hear Tears for Fears on the stereo. So when you're in the Chicago area, head over to the Underground Retrocade, where you'll find all those classic games you remember so well. And maybe, if you're good enough, you'll even be able to enter your initials in a couple of them. You know you want to. Heck, everybody wants to rule the world record high score tables. Yeah, I went there. And you can give it a shot at the Underground Retrocade, 121 West Main Street, West Dundee, Illinois. I'm Mike McGinnis. And I'm Carrington Vanston. And you're listening to No Quarter, the uh, weekly classic video arcade game podcast. And I'm trying desperately not to cough in your ear and everybody else's. You've got like a FM radio voice going. You're <laughs> yeah. listening to No Quarter on Mike it's, FM. It's nice and deep and it resonates in my head. <laughs> <laughs> so other than being ill, you're ill, dude. That was my rap talk. No um, communication, baby. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing all right. And you? I'm excellent. <laughs> of course you're you are. You're sick and I'm not. Woo-hoo, you're just here to give me perspective. Um, yeah, fabulous. I went out last night because uh, we're recording later than usual. It is now early Sunday morning. And I was out last night at a friend's house and we were playing board games. We played um, Settlers of Catan and, and uh, Suro and Zombie Dice and just a bunch of things. It was super fun. And the police caught you. They did not. Oh, I see. They catch me. Um, I like Settlers of Catan a lot. I've become a big fan of that game recently. I have not played in forever. In fact, the first time I played, which was the only time I had played before now, it was the original edition. So it didn't have this border that helps you like set up the board. So I was like, yeah, I know how to play this game. And they brought it out. I'm like, none of this looks familiar. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> it's the same game. It's just, I guess, the, the current editions are just physically different than the one I played on. Mm. Um, I was like, oh, this is different. But it was, it was the same game. And there were five of us. So I was worried... Um, there would be too many people to play, but there are expansions that let you have a bigger board and have more people sure. playing. Yeah. And holy cow, when when you play with more people, it's a much more complicated game. And I oh, lost yeah. badly, very yeah. badly, all because of my initial setup. Like I lost in the first move. <laughs> I think I didn't think ahead, and I was like, "Oh, I guess I don't want to build anything for a while," and I just got decimated. I think that's kind of the key to to that game is just you know making sure that you have a, a good starting point. Um, I didn't. My sister so has a bad finishing point. My sister has one called uh, it's called Spacefarers of Catan. I think it's a an expansion pack that they they only made briefly because the the pieces were very intricate and they were made of plastic and parts kept breaking off and and uh, people kept returning them and asking for replacement parts and it got very expensive so it wasn't on the market for very long. But it's uh it's actually I, I think I kind of prefer that one to the original. Um, is it space? Yeah, as well, and and you get these little spaceships, and they have things in them that move around, and it's yeah, it's pretty cool. Nice. Yep. Welcome to board game talk with Mike and Carrington. <laughs> I, I would do a board game podcast. I love <laughs> board games. I am all about the tabletop stuff. I love it. Mm, so I take it you're a fan of uh, Will Wheaton's uh, tabletop RPGs. I, well, those yes and no. Videos? Yes, I'm a fan in that it's a really good show, and I watch it and I enjoy it. So in that sense, I'm a fan of it. But in another sense, a sort of a selfish sense, I'm less of a fan because um, before, well before we did this show, like years ago, um, some friends and I were talking about doing ex- essentially the exact same thing with the name Tabletop. So I'd come up with the name, come up with the idea, said so we'll get together. There's a boardroom at one of my family businesses that would be perfect for filming it. It's got a sort of a wedge-shaped table, so you could have two people on one side, two people on the other, but you could film it from the one end and get everybody it has a big computer monitor behind it that would give us essentially an interactive green screen behind it. So just like the most amazing set for it, set it all up, approached a bunch of people about getting sponsorship. Everything was awesomely and onboard. And even the name tabletop with a very similar intro with like the rolling dice and all of that, except we were going to use dice for scoring games and things. So all of those graphics done. And then literally everybody involved in this show, except me got pregnant or was married to somebody who got pregnant and everything just shut down as they all went off and wow. said, 
I would rather have babies than do things like this, which is, you know, understandable. But then uh, single, non-impregnating or impregnated Carrington was like, mm. what about the show? And then it was maybe two years later, like that um, tabletop came out. So it was way before that. Um, now, his is the Will Wheaton show, and mine would have been the Who's That Guy in Canada show. <laughs> so it's not like it would have been comparable. Um, but yeah, so when it first came out, I was like, really? Really? Really, Will? <laughs> so, Wheaton? Um, other than that, the, the selfish you know, aspect, <laughs> which rules a lot of my life. But if I put aside my selfishness, I actually really like the show. And it's introduced me to a bunch of games I, I never would have played. Will Wheaton stole your idea. Oh, Will. Someday I'll be on that show, and I'll win. And I'll take the show away from him. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is my plan. This will be the stakes. Uh, winner takes the show. We're playing for pinks, Will. <laughs> <laughs> and then he'll be your new co-host, co-host on here. Oh, boy. It'll be you and, you and Wheaton. I don't think Wheaton wants anything to do with me. Not that- I, I don't know. I was, I was, I was going to say I was talking to him. I wasn't. <laughs> I was going to go somewhere You're talking with that, to him? I, I had nothing. <laughs> I got nothing. You got feedback. I do got feedback. Nicely segued, dude. Thank you, um, sir. Thank you. We got a bunch of feedback because uh, we haven't recorded for a while. So was last week the week that the draft two came out? Yes. Okay, then that's why. Because we seem to have a pile of feedback. And so I've selected some of them. Sorry if I can't read everybody's email. Just we got tons because it's been two weeks. And, and this is the kind of show that for some reason gets a lot of feedback. But let's read some of them. And I'll write back directly to the people who I don't read. We'll play it that way. Um, so Peter wrote in to say, hey, guys. Oh, he's talking about the, the Taito pronunciation. I always pronounce Taito, Taito, and I didn't know why, but I thought it be- the best way to find out was to see how the company itself pronounces the name. Then I remembered Bust a Move on the original PlayStation. Here's the intro logo from the N64 version, and he gave us a link to a YouTube video, and I will place that link in the show notes because the show notes are where it's at. Um, so Peter continues to say, so now, oh, in fact, I will insert the audio from that video here. And so we now know how to pronounce Taito. So, um, Taito. I really, I guess it was just the Thai, whether it's Thai or Tay. That's the part everybody seems to argue about. So this is another, another vote for Thai. Um, and of course he says at the end of his, of his email, Peter says, I hope you guys find this helpful for future episodes. And when you play a Taito game in the future, I expect you guys to put on your best Japanese girl impersonation and say it properly. So I will do my best to make sure that Mike does his best to do that. And I will continue to argue about how it's, Pronounced even though we now have an answer. I, yeah, I think we now have a few from a few places. For Rob, for Peter, pretty mm. pretty definitively, it is Taito. So there. No, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to say that it's not. Okay. <laughs> so they're pretty definitively just, just being it's not. contrarian. Sure, why not? Yes. Uh, Howard wrote in to say hi. You Just that. Howard wrote in to say hi. Next one. <laughs> no, he said, uh, you mentioned Gunhead a couple episodes ago, so I figured I would note the Gunhead video game for the Japanese console PC Engine. And he sent us a link to that. And again, links go in the show notes. Uh, he says, it was called Blazing Lasers when released in Canada. The game is fantastic. Also, you spoke of Strider possibly being more of a hyped now due to memories of it type game. It was being well hyped up in the game magazines in the early 90s. If I recall correctly, one of the bigger magazines, EGM, even called it Game of the Year in 1990, even though they weren't certain it would actually be released in 1990. And he also says, I never liked it. Ha ha ha. Thanks for the fun show, Howard. So it's funny how um, I would think feedback has been pretty much split on people saying, we are crazy, we don't understand good games, Gunhead, or sorry, um, Strider is one of the best games ever. And people who write in to say, I'm kind of with you, I never got got the reason why people like that. I think it comes down to whether or not you like that type of game. I agree. As you should, because I make really good points, and I, and, I, and I say them wells. That's why you're on the show, to make good points <laughs> is that, and, is, is, is and well say them. I will well say them. I will also well say Matt. Oh, and Gunhead. I should mention the Gunhead video game. I got really excited about it. It's like they made a video game based on the Gunhead movie. No, it is just a video game called Gunhead. Spelled the exact same way too, but really nothing to do with the film as far as I can tell. Um, so Matthew wrote in. Oh, in fact, not Matthew. Lieutenant Gunner, first class major, ah. Chef Matt the Third says, Hello, Grand High Marshal Carrington and Duke Mike of the Enchanted Forest. Mostly I read his email because I like that. You are mm-hmm. Duke Mike of the Enchanted Forest. I would like to say you are wrong. So he opens his email in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that intrigued me. I think he's not saying you, just you, Mike. I think it's the, the royal you. It's both of us. I'm being dragged into the wrongness with you. That's what I'm saying. Um, so Matt says, I was watching, watching some earlier episodes 
and I heard you say in Donkey Kong Jr. that Jr. was the first and only game in which Mario, or Jumpman, was the villain. I am here to uncover the truth. The last, oh sorry, the true first game with an evil and villainous Mario is Donkey Kong Circus. That game shows Mario standing on the side of the screen, jumping, yelling, and laughing as DK, and laughing at DK as he balances on a barrel, throwing pineapples and bouncing the three of them into the air again and again and again at, as his circus act. The game shows how Mario is a cruel and heartless creature who abuses his poor ape, and he deserves to have his girlfriend kidnapped. Anyway, greetings from BC, and never make that mistake again, or you are fired. I think banned is really the word we use around here, Matthew. I've never heard of that word. Uh, no, okay. So I okay. I don't know Donkey Kong Circus. This this was news to me. This is how little I know about video games. I'm like, oh, there's another Donkey Kong game. Who knew? So do you know Donkey Kong Circus? I do not. See, there you go. We're both learning. So I think we should add that to our list of games to review. Now I would also think though that even if Mario is a cruel and heartless creature, let's take that as red. Mario not a not a good fellow. I don't think that means his girlfriend deserves to be kidnapped. <laughs> like, why is she being punished? <laughs> Maybe he deserves to be kidnapped. Though I'm really not in favor of the whole kidnapping thing, period. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say really not in favor of kidnapping. <laughs> kidnapping, bad. But I don't think that somebody else should be kidnapped just because he's cruel and heartless. Just saying. Just saying. What's her fault for dating him and knowing how cruel and heartless he is? Blaming the victim. We're doing a little victim shaming here, aren't we? You're like, right. Okay. <laughs> See how it goes. That's exactly. It's That's her, her fault. fault. <laughs> she should have known better than to date That's him. right. How dare she happens. wear that? That's what happens. <laughs> so Yan, of course, friend of the show, Yan Lund Thompson, wrote in to say, Carrington, are you implying that Mike is old by asking if the two consoles he owned, well, they were fresh on the market, were the Fairchild and Pong? And I'll pause the email there to say, yes, that's exactly what I was implying. <laughs> He implies it every week uh, on every topic, pretty much. <laughs> so his email goes on to say, I'll have you know that I got a, I don't even know this, Gamatic 7600 Pong console for Christmas back in the 70s. And later, my parents brought home a Fairchild Channel F, sold as the Luxor video game system in Scandinavia. And I don't consider myself old, but you try and tell young people that today and they won't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks for playing 005, so I didn't have to. And that being said, I did have a quick go at it, and it is every bit as much of a sticker as you concluded. Yours, etc. Yan, thank you for the email. Um, I will also remind people that uh, Friend of the Show Yan has his own podcast as well. He does the uh, C64 Takeaway podcast at c64takeaway.com. And as always, when we mention other people's podcasts, I will stick a link in the show notes. So I will link away to that. Um, Barbara wrote in to say, first-time writer, long-time listener, unlike these Johnny-come-latelys who have been writing in the last few episodes, I've been on this ride since around episode five. Never miss a show. So here I am, writing in for the first time to provide a correction. <laughs> hey, it's tradition, right? That's why most of us write in, to school you. Well, school's in. <laughs> you mentioned last episode that the 005 cabinet was heavier than most at over 300 pounds. Well, perhaps surprisingly, that's maybe a bit on the high end, but really not that unusual. It's true that lots of cabinets were not too much over 200 pounds, and most of the Nintendo cabs, for instance, were under 250. But many games topped 300 pounds, especially the ones with larger monitors. And by the end of the 80s and into the 90s, cabinets got bigger and therefore heavier. Cabs for games like NBA Jam, Mortal Kombat, and Killer Instinct all weigh around 400 pounds, while rail shooters like Revolution both came in 400 and 700 pound versions. Riding games like Moto Frenzy and Air Combat usually tip the scales at over a thousand pounds. So us retro game collectors actually have it easy when it comes to lugging these beasts around, but even back in the day, many cabs were around as heavy as 005. Checking into some of your favorites, Sinistar's regular cab weighed 270 pounds, Elevator Action was 280, and your own Gravatar cab would weigh 307. And you could tell Mike that it would be 342 pounds for his beloved bubbles <laughs> how dare you <laughs> looking ahead i can tell from the sound sorry sound samples that in the next episode you will be talking about track and field that's a classic and i just looked it up and the century cabinet for that one was 330 pounds basically around the same as 005 so where did i find all this info am i an arcade cabinet savant heck no like everyone else i read it on the internet the Great Game Database site at ggdb.com has a large list of arcade games that includes dimensions, weights, and even estimated shipping sizes and shipping weights, too. 
It's a pretty handy source for collectors if you're planning out the logistics of picking up or shipping a cab. And here's a link to the list of games for which they have sizes and weights. She gave us a link. I will stick it in the show notes. One neat thing about that list, the first game on it, 005. The last game on it, Zizix, which you also mentioned last week. So last week you covered the entire alphabet 300 pounds at a time. Keep on keeping on, Babs. Anybody calls herself Babs, that's a total winner. So thank you for schooling us, um, Barbara. I, I have learned lots. Cabinets are heavier than I thought they were, is what I'm saying. That's what I learned from that. I always figured cabinets were around 200 pounds on average, so I am incorrect well, I imagine the cheap ones that um, you know that were made of the particle board and things like that were probably uh, lighter, and and I think a lot of those showed up, you know, when they were starting to just shovel them out the door as fast as they could, and you know, so at, when Double O Five came out, it was probably more one of the more unusually heavy ones, but yeah, I can I can see where it's certainly not the heaviest out there. I think. That we should read an email from Classy Freddy Blassie, another friend of the show, probably going to school us. He says, let me just say, I'm playing Defender on Midway Arcade Hits for Game Boy Color on a Game Boy Advance and Williams Arcade's Greatest Hits for Genesis on a Sega Ultimate Portable through an SD card. The game may lend some truth Sorry, this game may lend some truth to the crusty fogies of the 80s assertion that video games are harmful because this game would even make the no swear gamer curse. Right, Ferg? It does just about everything it can to frustrate you and even to cheat. You can shoot right through aliens all day, but their one shot destroys you. You speed up, you crash into an alien. When you shoot an alien carrying a human, it usually misses the alien, but always hits the human. When you're almost done with a the level, they send that ship out, and that's just cheating. Sometimes my defender blows up without seeing anything hit it. And I think the taking too long ship materialize right on top of your ship. And this is with a D-pad. Imagine with buttons. Although I greatly admire players with the skill required to master controlling the ship, I wonder how they even can survive on skill with so much cheating by this game. How do they kill the taking too long ship that crashes into your defender before you can barely move? Aside from this, it may be worth the hours or sorry, the long hours of play to achieve mastery over the ship's movements because you will have acquired a true skill. Um, they say nothing worth learning is easy. If you can get good at this game, you can blow away other games. Even if you are bored by this feedback at least it's not about swimmer <laughs> glassy freddy blassy uh i agree defender is hard defender is too hard defender is ridiculously hard i think it's too many buttons too many buttons for me to uh get my head around or my fingers around is that your problem too mike sure yeah that's that's what i'll blame it on <laughs> blame the buttons always blame the buttons it's just i don't know i, I feel like defenders controls are like one button too many for me to handle i think i have a button limit and I'm, I don't like playing arcade games where I feel like I'm doing I'm like the the, the phantom of the opera playing playing the uh, the organ with my multiple finger chords I don't want to chord on a game I want to hit just a couple buttons and three buttons seems to be something I can really get my head around and play but once you get up to like five buttons you're having to deal with it's too many yeah the the extra element of, of having to hit a button just to turn around and then uh, having to like continually manage thrust by ma by mashing a button was uh, more than my tiny little brain could manage. Tiny brains. That's going to be our next podcast name. Tiny brains. Sure. We'll talk about uh, board game board games and tiny brains. <laughs> so David in Bridgeport wrote in to say. A study in Nature was published detailing Google's attempt to program a computer that can learn how to play and become adept at vintage computer games. Now, did you read about this, Mike? Because this is super cool. I read a little bit about it. So he, um, uh, David wrote in to send us uh, one link to, in fact, a couple of people wrote in about this. And I'm going to, so I've got tons of different links. I'm going to pick at the end of the day, there's an NBC News article, which seems to be, one of the canonical sources that everybody else is just quoting. So I'll pick that one to link to because I could link to like 30 things. Um, so the NBC News article title is This AI Learned Art Atari Games Like Human Do, Like Humans Do, and Now It Beats Them, which is a little bit overstating it. So uh, it is about an artificial intelligence system called the Deep Q Network or DQN, and it was given Atari 2600 games to play, and according to the paper, which I'll link to the article in Nature as well, but it's behind a paywall, so the link really won't help you unless you're already a subscriber to Nature, and that one is called Human Level Control Through Deep Reinforcement Learning. So anyway, this DQN 
supposedly can outscore humans on 23 out of 49 games. Now, a lot of the articles about this refer to, you know, scientists, you know, and I'm always dubious of articles that are about scientists say, like, huh. mm-hmm. and the same thing here, humans. So it outscores humans. All of us, have a five some of us recommend <laughs> like which humans like, like my scores are much lower than other people's scores. So can this game out, can this thing outplay me? Cool. Can it outplay somebody who's actually good at these things? That's probably cooler. So I'm, I'd like to know specifically what humans, if it's the humans that are, are the scientists in this, well then that's okay. But are they necessarily good or representative humans or is it, how do you come up with the average? I don't know. I have, I have some questions and I don't get a lot of the answers because I can only read articles about the article of nature, not the actual article of nature. So that level of abstraction is making me a little dubious about this. That Ooh. said, it's a cool thing though. Like, cause um, it's, it seems to be best at action games and the fact that it can play them at all is cool because it's not something where they programmed this artificial intelligence system to play the game. They simply let it look at the video feed and they simply programmed it to know that a, a higher score is desirable. Go. And so it'll start from first principles, just like it can move controls. I don't think it's physically like a robotic hand moving controls, so they must just you know let it work on an emulator or something. But it would know that, hey, if I do something, these this part of the graphics move, and if I let this bit of graphic hit that bit of graphic, then it ends the game, and that's probably a bad thing. If I make this bit of graphic hit that little bit of graphic, and I interact with it in this way, then my score goes up. That's probably a good thing. So it really was about it learning each video game from scratch, from first principles, other than it can then take the knowledge it had from one video game and carry it to the next one. So it would increasingly get better as new games were introduced. It would have sort of a language it could try already. It's definitely better at short-term action games because, and I guess this was a programming limit, it only gets to look, when it's playing a game, it is comparing the last four frames of video. Like it's only ever aware of four frames of video at a time. So it'll say, here's the last four frames of video that came up, make a decision on what to do next. And then it advances one frame, it looks at the previous four frames and make a decision. So because of that, it's good at things like like a Pong game or Breakout because you can just look and say, oh, I see I've got a paddle on the bottom, a ball's coming in, I should interact with that. But on a game like, say, Ms. Pac-Man, where it's about longer-term strategy and getting to the other side of the board, it does very poorly at those games because it's really only aware of you're in this exact situation, here's the last four frames of video. Um the article quotes one of the scientists as saying, ultimately, if the agent can drive a car in a racing game, then with a few tweaks, it can drive a real car. Now, that seems to be overstating it. And if that's one of the people that publishes paper, I'm like, really? So you could drive a car in Atari? It's just a few tweaks to get out there and drive a real one? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I found it really interesting. And I do think it's a neat initial first tiny step toward perhaps better bots or more interesting um, uh, cooperative gameplay or or that sort of thing. So I think really neat things will eventually come of this, but let's not get too excited and think we should give it the keys to the car yet, I say. That's my opinion. You can quote me on that in the next Nature article you write. I'll do that, yeah. Okay, but you I'll put get right on that. But I'll put it behind a paywall where you can't actually read it. You'll just be able to read the <laughs> abstracts. You are cruel and unusual. I am. Very unusual. I always do you're unusual. The cruelty is the new one. Uh, so Ken Scott wrote in to say, not sure if these are your bag, but here goes zap culture, the new 10 song album by Jim bit featuring classic arcade games, reimagined as dance tracks. (laughs) Come on. Is this not my, yes, this very much is my bag. I have a bag full of this. So, uh, samples of them are Xevious kicks, smash TV, space fury, berserk. Are you kidding me? Of course I want I want these as reasons. So this is a fantastic... I was really pleased about this link. Thank you so much, Ken. Um, just really interesting. So it's basically... It's, it's kind of like, you know, not really reimagining the game fully, the gameplay as dance track, but more of a sort of based on it, but really interesting. And like, come on. So uh, thanks for the links. We will make sure that we... Um, uh, you, you can get the stuff from free from SoundCloud and um, Bandcamp. So uh, Ken gave us both links. I will put both links in the show notes. And I highly recommend the listeners go over there. Like, come on, it's free music. And it's how, how can you not want like Space Fury reinterpreted as a dance track? And it's free. I mean, that's <laughs> awesome. It's you totally put awesome. on your stereo and crank it up and dance the night away. Yes, which Mike does most evenings. Even without music. 
In fact, we frequently do this show first in interpretive dance, and then we redo it in audio. But yeah, someday we will, re- we will release the original Mike in his unitard um, doing interpretive dance of video games. It's, it's such a shame that this isn't a video podcast because I think everybody out there would just benefit from, from viewing such a, an event. I would definitely this. benefit from having video of you doing that. And then you will go gouge your eyes out and wish you'd <laughs> never been born. I would benefit. <laughs> um, Quinn, you might know somebody named Quinn. <laughs> she wrote in to say, nope. uh, and as always, giving us good info and taking pity on us. We had a couple of people write in to give us nice games to play. So Quinn write, writes, um, hey guys, I appreciated your screed on modular arcade games. I agree it's probably contributed to the mentality of shovelware. A good analogy is the early 2000s console games versus PC games. The former had vastly better code with much fewer bugs and better overall player experience because the developers only got one shot at it. There was a DVD and that was it. PC games can always be patched after you install them. So the running joke was that you buy a cardboard box and that contains permission to go home and download the version that works. As someone who worked many years in both console and PC game companies, I can tell you that the attitude is real. Oh, we'll just patch that after ship compared to we need to fix this. Everyone worked late. Hard external constraints can force higher quality out of people. Of course, nowadays, console games can be patched, so that's all out the window. I'm taking pity on the crap listeners are making you pay play. Go play Galplus. I don't know the story behind it, but I played it, arcade, played it at Arcade Expo, and it surprised the porridge out of me. It should play fine in MAME. So, hooray, people recommending games that are actually nice to us. I appreciate that. Thank you, Quinn. Uh, and then Lewis, who goes by Laser, wrote it, and another one who wants to give us a good game. He says, hello, gentlemen. I've listened to the show since show one and have enjoyed them all. Yes, you I'm got sorry, me Lewis. with Sorry Charlie. <laughs> yes, you got me with Sorry Charlie. My wife does tell me I'm gullible. The time has come to request a game for consideration. While doing a random try this game on MAME, I ran across Sky Fox. Charming is the best word I can come up with. I would like to hear what both of you think of this game. So we're going to definitely add that to the list of games to um, to play and review. Thank you, Laser. I appreciate that. When I think Sky Fox, I immediately think the Apple II game. So I wonder if this is in some way related to that? It is not, no. Oh, that disappoints me. Not, not the same at all. Oh, well, you well, dis- well, you well, disappoint me, Mike. Well, that has nothing to do with anything <laughs> other than that's just what I do. It's your but, fault. <laughs> but yeah, we'll, we'll definitely add that to the game list. Excellent. So uh, is it, I said Gal Plus. I think it's Gaplus. Yeah, I think so too. Like ga ga plus okay so you ga plus ga plus ga plus sounds like having no gap. I gotta say ga plus and uh, Sky Fox. So let's add both of those games we might actually enjoy mm-hmm. on our list of games to review. And then this week the game we're reviewing, as uh, Babs spotted from two weeks ago, um, this week is a game that isn't shovelware and was actually super super popular. And it is Track and Field by Konami from 1983, I think. Yes, that's correct. It's, uh, it was released in uh, Japan as Hyper Olympic, and uh, it is a multi-event sports game. Uh, obviously, um, well, I, I think the title gives pretty much the gives away the, the, the premise of the game. There's um, uh, six events in which you must compete. Um, up to four players can compete against each other, uh, and it's about the hundred meter dash where you run as fast as you can. Uh, there's the long jump. You uh, um, run to the takeoff board, and then you have to choose an angle of jump. Uh, the javelin throw, which is, uh, again, you run to the line and choose an angle of throwing. And the 110-meter hurdles, where you run as fast as you can and jump over the hurdles. The hammer throw. Uh, and the trick to that is well, you spin fa- is faster and faster, and you have to time the release of the hammer to throw it at the optimal angle. And then there's the high jump, which you jump over things. Isn't there six? Did we miss one? I think I didn't. I list six. Is the, the dash the jump? Oh, I forgot that I was. I think I started counting after the dash. Yes, there was the dash. You're right. I you just don't listen don't to anything wa- I had to say. <laughs> I, I, I listened to five sixths of what you had to say. And that's that's pretty good. New personal best. I have a question for you. I don't I don't watch the Olympics. The Olympics bore me. If they're not going to have me come out, oh, yeah, I'm not interested. So are these? actual like olympic events because it seems weird to me that it's 110 meters for the hurdles like why is it 100 why 110 that's such a strange number well i'm not sure about the exact length but i think these were all and i don't know if they're all still summer olympic events but at one point 
Um, I think they were. I think they were part of like the decathlon or something like that. This this would be so much more interesting, both as a video game and in real life, if they were all at once. So hundred meter <laughs> dash away from the people throwing hammers, or hundred meter hurdles with incoming javelins or something <laughs> like something like this. As you're as you're jumping over the the high jump. Right, exactly. That's it. The, the high long jump. <laughs> Just off a cliff or something. Um, so this game, as a Canadian, this game jumps out at me as being a remarkably raw, 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 go USA game. It just seemed very... And I guess it's because this was before the 1984 Olympics, and maybe it was supposed to capitalize on actual Olympic fever, but it seems like particularly American Olympic fever. Both later when we talk about the, the cabinet, it seems like a raw, raw... USA cabinet and the game just sort of had the feel of Americanness to it and I don't know if that's just because I associate the Olympics with Americans not that they came up with them um, I don't know just were the 84 Olympics held in the States like I don't know what made me think yeah. of this as such a US game uh, well I think the I think the red white and blue of the theme of the cabinet which I'm sure you'll talk about um, has a lot to do with that because like the track the, the big T in the track and field is a, kind of the, like the blue background with the white stars and then the red track and, and the rack and field is in red and against the white <laughs> background. And it, there's, that's that sort of a weirdly Japanese thing that happened back in the 80s with a lot of these games where it was made by Konami and it was distributed in the United States by uh, Century and, and probably in uh, Canada and Mexico as well. But um it was, it's made by the Japanese, but it's it's yeah it's it's oddly very nationalistically American. Yeah, I'm so not sure. yeah, and you're right that a lot of games, a lot of games we've dealt with were Japanese games that seemed very very about Americans. Yeah, it's I, odd I, that way. I was living in Los Angeles in 1984, and that's uh, that's the Olympics took place in in '84 in in LA, and and so oh um, yeah, there was there was Olympic stuff everywhere out there at, at that time, and, and I remember. Um, this game showing up in a lot of a lot of the arcades in preparation for for that and sort of being put in positions of you know uh, front and center when you walk into the arcade or or um, um, you know right as you as you walk in there's a row of like three or four of these things and kind of the the Olympic committee I guess is very protective of that that logo of the, the five rings and all that so they didn't couldn't use that but you know you kind of get around that the same way people get around the Super Bowl advertisements when they're not official sponsors or anything like that. So, um, but yeah, I, I remember this as, as being kind of a big part of the, the promotional efforts, at least around Los Angeles at the time. So have you ever competed in the Olympics? Uh, I have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, um, they, they didn't, not officially, of course, I, I, I just sort of showed up and, and started doing the events, you know, as they, I remember one year in Sarajevo, they were running around the track and I just, kind of ran out there halfway through and beat them all. You know, I didn't run the whole race. Showed up, uh, you know, at the, at the last minute, about 300 yards in front of everyone. Well, that's just so, good strategy. I don't think that should be so, penalized. So in fact, that's I am just... a, an, an unofficial Olympic gold medal winner. I'm, I'm still Excellent. waiting for my medal, but yes. <laughs> Any day now. Yep. Any day now. So, uh, like you said, there's six events. Well, you said five, but we're going to pretend you said Lies. six. <laughs> um, I found... Uh, one, I can't finish them all. <laughs> but there's each event has sort of different things about it that are tricky. And the first event, the hundred meter dash is like your baby event. Like it's the easiest event. Cause it's just the first thing where I would mess up on the first one was jumping the gun. Like this will let you start running before you're allowed to start running. <laughs> And it's called a flying start, which I learned from this game now. And if you do three of them, then you're, you're out. It's like, okay, we're done with you. <laughs> it counts as basically a loss. And uh, so this is, this is something I learned. And I like that about the game because it is more realistic that you have to wait for the starting gun. And there's speech. So the guy actually says, you know, ready, get set, and then the gun goes off. And then you run. And you do have to wait for it. So you have to, you know, go as quickly after the gun as you can. I like that bit of verisimilitude. I like be able to break out that word too. It's one of my big words. Um, the running in this game is, I guess, what it's most famous for because it's not a joystick based game, it's buttons. So there are two buttons, really three buttons that you'll use, but there's two buttons that you use for anything that involves running and you alternate. You hit like the left one and the right one, the left one, and the right one, kind of like these are going to be your steps. So it's a famous game for how people beat on it to try to, to run as fast as possible. And, and that's the key. Like if you can't press them at the same time, you have to alternate them. So 
to get good at this game, you have to be good at keeping that rhythm up as fast as possible. And I guess there's like a pencil trick people would use, and I don't really know how that works. Like you put a pencil through your fingers, so and then you would rock the pencil back and forth. Is that do you know about the pencil trick, Mike? Uh, I've heard of it. They they sort of demonstrated, I think, in maybe like the King of Kong or, or one of those other arcade. Um, um, we now know those movies are full uh, of lies. Well, <laughs> I think this might actually be a real technique, though. Um, there, there's, yeah, there's a scene briefly where somebody talks about using that, the pencil technique to, to get really high scores. Um, I, I, I don't remember trying, I don't remember being aware of the trick at the time. And I, I, so it's, it's something I probably would have tried because I did play this game in the arcade and I had a, a lot of fun with it, but there were, there were a bunch of different tricks that I think people came, have come up with, um, since the game was released to, to try and, sort of nail down that, that the perfect speed at which to hit the buttons um, and to maintain that, that, that rhythm and make your little mustachioed guy run as fast <laughs> as possible. I love that they all have like little weird mustaches for some reason. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, with these games, you have to qualify in each one. Like there'll be a, a, a speed at which you have to do the 100 meter dash. It's not just about winning. It's about beating a certain preset speed. And if you do that, then you get to move on to the long jump. And with the long jump, you have to be able to jump a certain distance. And you get three attempts to qualify that. If you foul, like if you jump past the line you're allowed to jump at, that counts as one of your turns. And, and if you can qualify within your three attempts, then you get to move on to the javelin throw, etc. So it is about you're not necessarily going to do all six events. You won't necessarily make it to the high jump. It's you, you've got to do a certain ability to get there. And with the high jump, it seems to, as far as I can tell, just go on forever. It just gets higher and higher and higher. I don't know. Um, again, not my master mastering game. I did read about the game to try to get some tips on like, uh, like you said, like there's angles. Like when you do like the long jump or the javelin throw, you're basically running up and at a certain point you're saying, okay, begin. And then you set an angle. So I try to look up like, well, what is the best angle? And depending on the source, I got different answers. Mm. So like Wikipedia, for instance, says in the article on the long jump, 42 degrees is the best. But Clove says 45 degrees. So there's some disagreement. It doesn't seem to be, I don't know, I, maybe Arcade History is probably a canonical source and Wikipedia is more likely wrong. They seem to be wrong about a lot of stuff when it comes to <laughs> things like this. But it's roughly 45 degrees. You want to be roughly in there. Unless you're going for like a super world record, you're going to do well enough you get roughly at 45 the one that seems sort of messes up the angles the most is the high jump because you quickly you know you do your running your alternate button to run then you press the jump throw button to jump but then once you're in your angle you can press the run buttons to change your angle and and you have to do that like more than once so you're sort of changing your angle mid-air as you're arcing your body so that's different the rest of them are sort of you run and then you press and hold until you hit the angle you want for say throwing the hammer uh the one that would mess me up the most is the hammer throw it's i think also the only one where you don't have to do the alternate buttons to run so you just press the run button once and you start spinning but you spin sort of faster and faster and there's this slight pause when you get to like the optimal point to to throw but that slight pause messes me up because it, th there's no rhythm to it. So you spin around and there's a slight pause. Then you spin faster in the slight pause. And you spin faster again in a slight pause. And so that messed me up completely. Yeah, um, me too. So I would frequently just throw – I was very dangerous. I, I threw my hammer right off the side all over the place. And thank goodness there's that net thing around you. Taking out um, the so spectators and the judges. <laughs> <laughs> so hammer throw is is my uh, – my, uh, the, the worst – one for me. That's your I found I could. It what kind of is like I could get past the rest of them. 110 meter meter hurdles was the other one. Like each one does, I guess, just get harder. So what a surprise! But I was, you know, 100 meter dash relatively easy. Long jumps relatively easy. Javelin throw as long as you can get a decent to uh, get something around 45 degrees or so, and you're running kind of quickly, you'll you'll qualify. If not, do amazing, but you'll get past it. The hurdles would mess me up because you got to be able to jump those hurdles and time that, right? And there's very little time between the jumps. Like you jump and you land and you're barely taking a couple of steps before you have to jump again. And if you mess up even twice on that, you, you, you fall when you hit the hurdles and you lose so much speed, you're not going to qualify. So you kind of have to be able to get every hurdle 
to be able to qualify. But I got to the point where I could do that. Then I get to the hammer throw. And the hammer throw is like just a nightmare. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh. It, is, it seems to be a major jump in difficulty from the earlier ones. So hammer, hammer throw destroyed me. Yeah, this, this is a game that definitely um, benefits from a lot of practice and building, building the, the muscle memory for the, for the rhythm of hitting the buttons. And, and in fact, I, I guess um, the, the original cabinets, uh, people would just, one of the techniques was just to bang it with your fist. And and it would it would break the buttons and so many of these things were ended up broken that Konami first replaced the buttons with a trackball that you would wiggle back and forth instead of buttons that you could hit. Um, I know that there were other cabinets out there where I guess they tried some interim techniques like they would put a, a plastic lip around the buttons so that you couldn't just pound it that way, um, and which also I guess interfered with the pencil technique. So um, I, I remember I had. There's a game called uh, Olympic Decathlon for the Apple II, uh, which had a, a similar uh, mechanic where you compete in all of these Olympic events and, and you have to like pound the, the arrow keys to, to run at the right speed and, and things like that. And there were, there were um, um, urban legends about kids snapping the keys off the keyboard and, and, and destroying their keyboards because they were hitting them so hard. And, and I remember my dad read one of these in like nibble or insider or something. And so I was not allowed to play this game or play Olympic decathlon on my Apple II actually. So I, I really look forward to being able to go to the arcade and, and, and play this. You can go now. Well, they don't have this in my <laughs> local arcade anymore, probably because they're all broken. <laughs> could be. I like, um, I like that this this is a a game that multiple people can play. Not at once. It's a, it's a it's well, a, like play four player, but two people can play simultaneous. I love a game that includes a simultaneous multiplayer. So that's a re- oh, well, four people can play. Two people can play at the same time. I dig it. Uh, okay, so as I, as I understood it, I, I've never played the played this multiplayer with my friends or anything. But um, and maybe I res- maybe I was reading it wrong, and you can correct me because you like to do that so much. Do um, people write in? <laughs> that's true. Um, I, I thought that the hundred meter dash was the one thing that you could do simultaneous, and the rest were take turns. Am I, am I wrong about that? No, it would make sense because you can't be both spinning your hammers at the right. same time. So. <laughs> um, but it would be the hurdles you would do simultaneously. Okay. Yeah, I guess that would make sense. And the long trip. <laughs> 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 that could be a simultaneous game. Mm-hmm. Um, this game has Easter eggs, which I think is pretty cool. Mm, yeah. and, and little things about that I really like. The javelin, I think the thing that really struck me, <laughs> the javelin struck me, yeah. the thing that really uh, struck me about that I really liked is the format of the screen. The bottom two thirds of the screen are essentially the play area. That's where you'll be running or jumping or throwing your hammer or what have you. And it's the top third is like a big scoreboard. It's a big score area because you can have up to four people playing. So it's a, there's a large amount of scoring. When you throw the javelin, the javelin, when it goes up into the sky, it doesn't disappear behind the score area. It goes in front of your score. And I really like that. I think that's a great graphical idea so that you're, you're throwing the javelin right through your score area. And just something about it really struck me as, as awesome. Well, apparently um, if, you, if, you, if you achieve the maximum angle with the javelin, you can throw it off the top of the screen. And, and if you do, it comes down with a bird and you get a thousand point bonus for A thousand that. points for hitting a bird. How yep. cool is that? Um, there's also a mole for the high jump. So if you fail the high jump twice and then clear it, then a mole burrows up from the ground and you get a thousand point bonus. So hooray for that. And okay, so yeah, arcade history lists these. I, I never saw them. Uh, well, like so for the the hundred meter dash, you have to be playing with somebody else. And and uh, but if player one and player two uh, achieve exactly the same time, a thousand point bonus is awarded. Uh, for the long jump, uh, three jumps of exactly the the same length will cause a little man with a key to run across the screen, and you get a thousand points for that. Uh, the hundred and ten meter hurdles, if both fi- both players finish the race uh, in a dead heat, then the little man the little man again appears with the key, and and you get a thousand points uh, for each player for that. Uh, on the high jump, if you fail the first two jumps and then clear it, the mole that's when the mole shows up, and you get a thousand points. Um, and I guess there's there's a bug where in both the javelin and the hammer throw, if you throw it over a hundred meters, it wraps around. So a hundred meter twelve plus twelve uh, throw, for example, will only be logged as as twelve meters, and you and you don't qualify. Sucks to be you. Yeah. Yep. Luckily, that was not going to be an issue. <laughs> <laughs> no, not for me. <laughs> throw it that far? No, no. not going to happen. Um, but I, you know, I. This game was really refreshing in that it was so different 
than the other games we played recently. Like it's being a sports yeah. game made it different. Um, being that there's all these heats and and it's it's competitive, but it's competitive against yourself. Like you're trying to beat a personal best at distance. You know, all Olympic sort of stuff. So that is, I think, the thing I enjoyed about this game the most is it it was so different than the last fifty games we played. And I, 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 from what I'm reading based on the history of this game or about the history of this game, uh, I think a lot of people probably felt the same at, at the time that the game was released because um, this was hugely popular. I mean, a massive hit for Konami. Um, and it's, it wasn't your standard space shoot 'em up or your maze chase game. I would have liked space shoot 'em up Olympics, though. That would be fun. Or 100 meter maze. maze. <laughs> totally. So this, yeah, I think it was also probably Olympic fever. Um, yeah, I'm sure so some of that really was a, a big part. Now of this, it. this then had, I think it did really well, and then it had like sequels, and it was also ported to everything. But I'm not really sure. I know it was on the Apple II, and then I think it was ported to a bunch of other stuff. Okay, so there, there, are, uh, arcade history again lists the series as being um, track and field in '83, hypersports in '84, uh, '88 games in '88, hyper athlete in '96. Uh, Nagano Winter Olympics in 98, uh, International Track and Field in 2000, uh, International Track and Field Summer Games also in 2000, and New International Track and Field in 2008. I have not played most of those. I don't think all of those were arcade, but those are listed as the official sequels. I've heard of Hypersports and the 88 Games one. I remember those from arcades, and that's it. After that, you lost me. It was uh, ported to the uh, Atari 2600 and the 5200. Apparently, they also had built a prototype for the 7800 that was never released. It appeared on the uh, XEGS and then pretty much every Nintendo platform uh, out there. And it's been on the Microsoft Xbox 360 as part of the Konami Classics Volume 2. And the home computers listed are the Commodore 64, the the ZX Spectrum, the MSX, and the Apple II. And I don't actually remember ever seeing this on the Apple II. I think I knew it was out there, but... Uh, all, all my friends played Olympic decathlon. Um, I remember because it's, you know, those, um, I think it was part of the Atari series. Wasn't it those orange boxes? Maybe. I think track and field came that way. Yeah. I think it's one of those orange boxes that they come up on eBay quite a bit. Those bright orange boxes with plain white wording. on all the right. front That'll be donkey Kong or, yeah. and I think track and field was or one of those, like but the neat thing is it comes with a controller. So the track and field version of the app for Apple if I recall, it's a very thick orange box instead of the skinny ones. Because in addition to the disc and the tiny little instruction manual, you get a plug-in controller that plugs in as as if it's a joystick. But it, it just has three buttons. So it's got the running buttons. And so you play it that way rather than playing it on the keyboard on the computer. You have a dedicated arcade-style button controller for the Apple II. Oh, and uh, Bandai released two of uh, two of its LCD handheld games in 1984, the Track and field running type and the track and field throwing type. But was it ever interpreted as a disco track? <laughs> it should have <laughs> That's been. That's my new bar. <laughs> it should have been, and I will be very disappointed to find out that it did not. <laughs> I hope it was as well. Mm-hmm. So um, should we talk about the cabinet? Sure. Let's, uh, first, let's talk about the, um, the CPU and the specs that uh, featured a, um, a Motorola M6809 at 2.048 megahertz, which seems kind of, um, kind of low end for a 1983 release. Uh, the sound CPU was a Zilog Z80 at 3.579 megahertz, and for sound generation, it had a DAC. It had an SN76496 at 1.789 megahertz, and a Sanyo VLM5030 at 3.58 megahertz. Carrington, tell me about the cabinet. It's American. It's American cabinet. <laughs> it's, it's a red, white, and blue cabinet. Mostly, it's blue front and white sides with red, white, and blue graphics. Logo at the top is the, you know, the jingoistic rah, 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 USA track and field with the big um, white stars and blue background T and the, like you say, the red stripes for the rack and the field. Um, the control panel is kind of neat. Let's get to the second. Side art kind of is like full side art and kind of isn't. And here's how they're cheating. Uh, it's a Konami cab, so it's quite angular. And I think it's called the Type A cabinet. And it really has half height side art. So the top half of the the sides are filled with art, but the art is shaped and cut around the side. So it completely fills in it. So I really like that, but because it's art with some white stripes and and white background, it really is just white below that, but it integrates into the artwork. So it's kind of like cheating. So only the top half has any printed bits, but the white bottom halves 
feel like they're part of the art because because of the stripiness of the top. So it's a neat way to get away with half-height side art that kind of has the feeling of full-height side art. So I'll give them a pass there. The control panel is pretty cool. Uh, we talked about how it's button-based game instead of joysticks, so there are no joysticks here. This would be appropriate for that sticks arcade I did in the first arcade draft. Um, two buttons for run for each of players well there's two player positions but it can be up to four players but you've got players one and three on one control set and players two and four on the other because you alternate and it then has a jump or throw button between your run buttons so each control area has three buttons then up top there are four buttons for player starts so you want to play a one two three or four player game because it has the word players written under the buttons you've got seven letters equally distant under four buttons so it's hard to describe but there's these red stripes against blue stripes because the whole you know red white and blue business but that means the letters l y r in players are white on blue and jumping out much more under each button are the letters p a e s in players so because that whenever i look at this control panel it kind of looks like it says pays like presses button for what's going to pay i always find it messes me up reading it that i don't like about the control panel Art is fairly simple on it. It's just, you know, red, white, blue stripes. It, it feels like it should have, like, a an eagle flying by <laughs> with something because it's super American. <laughs> Lots of little instruction areas. The only other thing to really note about it that I think is kind of cool and very different for a 1984 game is player one is on the right. So player one and three are the right controls. Player two and four are the left controls. So if you play a one-player game, you stand to the right side of the screen, which is very unusual, especially by this time. It, it, most arcade games had sort of uh, standardized on the idea that player one was on the left. And it's no joysticks here. It's just so it doesn't matter which hand you are, but they've decided right side is player one. Very odd. Yeah. Price-wise, it's a cabinet that goes if it's in like perfect condition for some crazy reason, can be very expensive. You could drop $800, $900 on this cabinet. Usually, it's much less because it's a simple cab and there were tons of them. So if you're willing to take one that doesn't look like it's fresh off the factory, you can pick up for like $100, $150. So it's it's one of those cabinets that has an extreme range of value. So if you want to pick one up, you want to hold out for a bargain because they will definitely come along. There's lots of them and people, you know, pass them on quite often and it's not a other than like if you get your buttons in their working order and you don't destroy them it's not like a notoriously flaky cabinet so it's there's lots of them around and they'll be around for a while so easy to pick up a, um, a bargain on this there were cocktail cabinets as well and uh two position cocktail cabs so players one and three on one side and two and four on the other but you know one set of controls each one neat thing about it i guess a couple of neat things to mention is the cocktail cabinet came as two different heights there's the standard cocktail cabinet, but there was also a taller cocktail cab that basically had a, a stand, like a base that it stood on. So it would be at the height that you could stand at. So it was a, a, a um, like bar table height. You can get it either like the standard 76 centimeter high or you can get 100 centimeter high, which for Americans is call it 30 inches and 40 inches, roughly in that. Um, so kind of neat that it would have that stand. I haven't seen that in a lot of other games. It was also available as a Play Choice 10 version, which is basically just the, the NES version that was available in the arcades. And a really cool thing that sets it apart that nobody seems to want to talk about much, but it was at least in the, the ads and the manual I saw for it, was the original release of this came with trophies. So when you bought this as a kit, you got the the cabinet or a conversion cabinet you got a promo poster you got a bunch of pads for daily control sheets and you and a whole system to run um competitions in your arcade you got these monthly control what they call control sheets was like basically keep track of people's stats and you got high score of the week trophies you got four of those and one high score of the month trophy and then you could reorder for however many months you want to run this so um but it would come with five trophies like so if you bought this cabinet you're supposed to get four small trophies and one big trophy with the cabinet so really if you're going to pick one up a complete cabinet should come with four trophies (laughs) and i don't see those ever for sale so that's the more rare thing um and i think that's the thing if you're a collector you should look to try to get those and it's kind of neat that they did that well of a link there's a whole manual for this promotion um and what you get and how you run these things so if you wanted to run one of these like if you've got a bunch of friends coming over if you've got an arcade hey underground arcade (laughs) (laughs) so but there's like an official way to run a monthly track and field competition um, which is kind of cool. And then you're supposed to get these little trophies. So yeah. I'll have a link to all that and so you can see the images of what you're supposed to do and how to run the, the, the promotion uh, at your house. 
I remember uh, I had I have distinct memories of of the arcades in my areas, especially during the Olympics, running this uh, these trophy competitions. And uh, but as I was researching the game for today, I, I couldn't find really anything about it. And then I, I stumbled across a flyer that had the rules and. And it, it reaffirmed that, yes, Mike, you're not as crazy as everyone says you are. And this did indeed happen. So, yeah, I, I was never ever good enough to get even close to qualifying for, for one of these. But, yeah, it was, um, it was kind of a, a neat promotional uh, way to get people interested in a game that they already loved. It's pretty funny people showed up at the actual Olympics with pencils. <laughs> I'm ready to go. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready to compete. Uh, there was a bootleg uh, of the game called Atlant. Olympic with uh, a spell with an, uh, a second I instead of a Y uh, released in Italy in 1996, which is 13 years after the game first released. And it was the year that MAME first appeared. And somebody bootlegged track and field then? Yes. Very That's crazy. Very strange. Very strange. Uh, there's a, a, um, a song that, that plays during uh, the high score uh, on the high score screen. It's, it's the, uh, the theme for chariots of fire by Vangelis, which if you were alive and spoke English in 1983, you knew about Chariots of Fire and you knew that theme. I knew exactly. I, I associate that theme with running on the beach. Yes. Um, oh, and or I associate that theme really with sitting in a movie theater watching other people run on a beach. <laughs> yeah. And this, uh, the, the game appeared in your favorite movie, Carrington, The Goonies. That is not my favorite movie. It is too. No. I have can, a, you guess I have, my, can you guess my favorite movie? I have movie? assigned it to you. It is now your favorite movie. <laughs> yes. Take a guess. What is my actual favorite movie? I'm going to say it's Real Genius. That is an excellent choice and an excellent guess and wrong. <laughs> it's my favorite movie, so I figured it would yep. be yours too. That Princess Bride, a couple of you know the usual choices would be like sort of top five, but number one actually is Joe versus the Volcano. Ugh. It is an untouchably wonderful movie. <laughs> and we're going to talk about it at length in the next show. I do agree. It's it's a fun it's a fun movie. Not not, not my favorite at all. But, he says but, disparagingly. No, it's, it's a fun movie. I like it. I do. It was, it was um. I saw that. I remember seeing that in the theater and somebody dragged me to it. I saw the title. I'm like, what on earth are we going to see? Is this going to be like Amazon Women on the Moon or something like that? But no, it was second it was favorite good. movie. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Although the opening scene, that's like the funniest thing that. Uh, uh, Arsenio Hall ever did was that opening bit in Amazon. <laughs> yes. like, that was the pinnacle of I his agree. career. That, whole thing, <laughs> that is such a funny little bit mm-hmm. that he did. And I was always remembered. That, yeah, that's, that's the thing you did. That was good. Arsenio. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Joe vs. Volcano was the first, I think the first movie I ever saw where I went to see it in the cinema. I came out, bought another ticket, went back in and saw it. Again. Wow. I saw, I saw two in a row and you yeah. really liked it. I loved it from first viewing and it is so brilliant and just ah, love that film. Um, this game, on the other hand, I like but don't love. I agree. Never played much back in the in the arcade because I just don't dig this kind of sports game. And that's nothing – I'm not saying anything bad about the game because I think it's a really well-implemented version of what it is. I'm just not – I never watched the Olympics, and I'm not super into this kind of sports game. I like sort of head-to-head competition sports games. Like I'd like a, like a wrestling game is more fun, more trash talkings than something like this. I like a multiplayer game where it's more head to head. I do want like, you know, you both got javelins at either end and it's the hunger javelins. <laughs> it's a game I want a game like that. So this game, well, it's fun and it's kind of neat to be able to get, try to beat your personal best. That only carries so far for me where I'm like, okay, let me play this game and see if I can shave off a half a second from that time. There's just not as much, there's not enough play time in this. Like there's a lot of doubt. You, you spend a lot of time standing in front of the, this game waiting for the next yeah. thing for you to do. So you run a bit and then you wait and they measure it out and then you run a bit and you wait. And I get that you're pounding so hard. Like you, you kind of have to take a break, but I like a game that's more continuous gameplay. So again, I don't think that's means it's wrong because this, the game is what it is. It's not fair for me to say, Oh, I wish this was a different sort of game. So I think as an Olympic style track and field game, it's really well implemented. It's got voice. It's got decent graphics. It's got really fun Easter eggs. I think it's as good as you're going to get this kind of game, it, which just proves that I don't dig this kind of game. Right. So, yeah, that's what I, I say. I agree. I, I think that um, thinking back, I, I remember enjoying it a lot more um, back then than I do now. This felt a lot like a reflect a reflexive button masher, um, and kind of was a lot of work at times. Um, and and I. I I like the sort of in-between scenes, the little cut scenes and the animations and, and and the measuring and stuff. But but you're right, it does slow down the gameplay quite a bit. So yeah, a, a fun 
a fun, good sports game, but probably not not going to make my top ten list of five hundred games that I love. <laughs> that is big top ten list. Yeah. So shall we talk scores? Shall we compare our oh, Olympic? Go abilities? ahead, you first. Uh, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that you might have beat me. So I usually could get to the hammer throw, and I usually would not get past the hammer throw. I occasionally did. I never got past the high jump though. So I don't know. Um, presumably it starts over or something. I don't know. Like I, I looking online, there's two different ways people do the, like the world record high scores. And one is like a one event thing. Like you go through and you're done. And others seem to be a setting that let you just sort of loop through and you can go for crazy high scores. I don't know. Cause I, I couldn't, whatever setting I was on, I don't know because I never even got to the end of the stinking high jump, but I did get to the high jump. And, uh, the best I ever did for the, this last, well, I guess two weeks, but really this was two weeks ago. I played it was 42,750. So four, two, seven, five, zero, um, which would have been on the high jump, but early on, I, I always fouled out on the high jump. Never, never could do it. Uh, what about you, Mike? How'd you do? I did. Um, I did a little bit better than you. Um, Boom. overall I got the 56,400. Um, Holy moly. You did much better than me. And, uh, I could usually get to the high jump and occasionally get through it and loop around again. Um, but not much further into the, to the second round, um, because the game for got a lot harder for me for some reason. Um, yeah, I, the, the hammer throw was, was really tough cause you, you got to angle that, that throw just right. And the high jump is, is, was a challenge. I, I ended up finding a video online that kind of showed like, well, here's how you actually do the high jump. Cause I just I'm like, why am I not nailing this? So, um, call me a cheater for watching somebody else's technique, but that's what I got. No, it's, uh, I watched online. Well, I didn't, but I read online about stuff to try to help me. It just wasn't, wasn't good enough. And I don't think I'd go back to try to do better. I would like to beat the high jump. Like, and I know it kind of just keeps getting higher and higher and higher until you die, but I'd like to be able to like, you know, officially qualify or beat the first three or something. So I may go back to it for that, but I'm going to take a break from it first. Uh, interesting world record stuff on this because there's different world records for playing in an arcade and playing on MAME. And to people who take it really seriously on MAME will use like particular controllers. And so people do take it quite seriously. So yeah. Hector T. Rodriguez is the, I think the current world record holder from 2009, and he got a score of 95,350, which beat the previous world record of 95,040. So I guess in the 95,000s is the best you can do. But that record of 95,040, the one he beat, had been in place since 1985. So um, it was, I guess, quite a big deal that in 2009 he actually beat that because maybe a lot of people were thinking 95 and 40 was the best you could do. The main world record is... Um, higher than that but it's like a different sort of setting thing but the actual main world record that run is available on youtube you know you make videos and you submit them we'll have a link you can watch the main world record play which is kind of cool and so uh the guy who has number six for arcade gameplay uh tommy t honen i guess it's pronounced um he's the current main world record holder and on his YouTube account has his video and it's like, like an older video. You look at it, it's like shot kind of crappy and stuff, but from, cause it's from a couple of years ago, but then it got uploaded on main. Um, what I found interesting about it was not just watching it and just seeing this person who's like, just walks through everything that's really well. And then gets to the high jump and just goes like higher and higher and higher and mm-hmm. higher and higher. It's crazy. Um, but then the comments are super unkind and people take this of game course. very seriously. And of course, YouTube is just, you know, mean people. And so a bunch of people accusing him of using auto fire because if you can use like an auto fire thing, you can just like press and hold down buttons and auto make them auto fire in sequence and you'll just do perfect running. Sure. So a lot of people are just accusing him of using that. Then other people come to his fence and say, no, look at this frame and this frame. And you can see that it's like the timing slightly off. Like the, it's like the, that JFK thing, like they're analyzing the little bits of the film. It's like, film. okay, guys. And yeah, exactly. And then Tommy himself like responds a couple times saying, no, in this, rec- it didn't, you can see here and here is where I messed up. And I use the hot rod panel with these micro switch buttons, which you're allowed to use. And here's the one. And e- each push is a single finger tap. And, he, but I, he likes that better than the leaf switch ones. And other people right back and say, no, I prefer this kind of controller. And like people take this game very seriously to try to shave off like hundreds of a second on stuff. Um, oh yeah. So interesting. So but anyway, we'll link to that video because it's neat to watch a world record run and it's not that long. So if you want to see an arcade world record, you can watch it and it just takes a few minutes. And um, it's neat to see 
in the comments, which are mostly just horrible people doing horrible things, but in among them are really interesting details of people who take gaming very seriously and want to talk about the difference between switch types and what's appropriate where. And that stuff is useful and fun to read. It's interesting also that, uh, well, arcade history lists that, uh, you get an extra life for, for scoring 100,000 points, so nobody in the arcade has ever gotten an extra life. Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> that's, that's so funny. I didn't realize that that was the case. That's probably, Maybe they realized literally it would be impossible to get 100,000 points, so they, they said it to be, you get 50 free men and 100,000 <laughs> points. And a free arcade game to take home. Well, I think, and uh, trophy. I think I said 56,000. I meant 52,000. Sorry. I think we're going to call that just 2,000. Okay. I'm good with that. Okay. Well, you know what? You still beat me, though. Well, I'm still... 2,400 still I, beats me. Well, I, and I'm still trying to work out of that 400,000-point hole or whatever that I dug so myself can, all the way back. if we keep in... Are you going to just keep lowering your score 4,000 at a time for the next... Because I'm willing to extend this this podcast if that's what it'll take for your score to drop below 42,700. <laughs> sure. So I, I meant 48,000 for... <laughs> <laughs> No, it's I'll take the loss. It, so. It's that stinking hammer throw, man. So many times, it's tough. I would just, it's I would tough. just, well, I would also play a bunch, and then I would get so frustrated by the hammer throw, I would just, you know, leave it for a day or two. I'd be like, ah, oh, it's stinking. So it's a pain that it's far enough into the game that I have to like play quite a bit to get to that hammer throw. Like one of the advantage of advantages of playing on a system that would let me say save state or something, which I haven't set up for main, is I could get to the hammer throw maybe and then save and then just keep working <laughs> on the hammer throw. But instead, I have to always play the whole game up to the hammer throw, knowing I was probably gonna gonna um, foul out. Um, so just uh, so yeah, frustrating. It, it does make it difficult to practice those those later events. Yeah. Oh well. Oh well. What are we playing next week, Carrington? This game again, or hyper, hyper version of this game, with actual I, hammers. I want to play the, the, the 1996 Italian bootleg of this next week. <laughs> you know it. Mm-hmm. No, but what, whatever game we do play, what does it sound like? Why, oh, Carrington, I think it sounds like this. Well, I think that brings us to the end of another podcast. It was fun. Bye, everybody. Bye. You've been listening to No Quarter, the classic arcade podcast. Feedback can be sent by email to noquarter at monsterfeet.com, or you can find us on Facebook as No Quarter Podcast, and on Twitter, we are at No Quarter Show. You can also find us on both the Throwback Network and the Real Retro Junkies Network. All of these links, plus the show notes, are available at monsterfeet.com. And like all Monster Feet podcasts, the original material in this episode has been released to the public domain. I like field better than track. <laughs> <laughs>